So this morning we uh, have the opportunity this Resurrection Sunday to hear from our brother uh, Chris Taylor, and I'm going to read the. Did somebody say woohoo? I wasn't. That wasn't a rhetorical. Did someone say woohoo? Woohoo! It wasn't a rhetorical. <laughs> did somebody say woohoo? I just. It's a question. No one's answering me. He asked me to read the text from God's Word this morning, so I'm going to read that for us. Uh, Matthew 28, verses 1 to 9, and then I'm going to also flip over to John chapter 20 and read 19 through 23. This is God's Word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. John twenty nineteen. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is God's word for us this morning. Morning. Christ is risen. Amen. We, or Matthew just read two accounts of the first encounters with the risen Christ by first the women at the tomb, and then secondly, of course, the disciples, the, the men. The women were going to the tomb ostensibly to cover the stench of the corpse of Jesus with spices. They were coming to cover the stench of a good story gone bad. Disciples, likewise, were alone, disillusioned, disappointed despairing of a failed promise. And all they could see was that Jesus, the victim, and thereby fell under fear themselves and locked themselves in a room for fear the Jews would come and they would be next. Two encounters. But each party discovered that the resurrection changed everything. Amen? Acts 4.27 gives us 
just some background on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that we as believers have to get our minds around. For the disciples and the women, this was a failed promise. It was a story gone wrong that they were putting the best face on it that they could until Jesus came. The early church had these words about the death of Jesus Christ. And they said, for truly in this city, this is Acts 4.27. Truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do, now listen carefully, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That last phrase is mind-boggling. And many Christians avert their glance from that and, and, and choose not to think of the implications of those words. Jesus Christ was crucified, and this was done to fulfill whatever God's hand and his purpose predestined to occur. That's amazing. Hand throughout the scriptures is the organ of personal action, of agency. Whenever God says, I hold you up with my righteous right hand, he's talking about his personal holding us up. But not only is it his personal action, but it's his purpose, his will, and his plan. And this plan was predestined before the ages to occur. It was always God's intention, his desire, his design, his will, his purpose, his plan to have Jesus Christ crucified for us. So I would summarize the most reprehensible act of history, the crucifixion of the innocent son of God, pure unvarnished evil was in reality the will and plan and direct action of God. Theologians would say this, God always exercises his sovereign will over all, always uses all for his greater glory and our future joy. And nothing displays this so clearly and magnificently than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The promise is clear. Nothing is outside the realm or scope of God's care and control for all of us as believers because of the resurrection. Even this most heinous act of history was not outside of God's care and control for his glory and for our good. Today, I just want to make two points today. Very simple. The first point is we need a theology of the scars of Jesus. We need to know a Jesus of the scars. And second point is the promise or application, that since Jesus has scars and rose from the dead, he is infinitely more important to us now than if he had never suffered. He is infinitely more important to us now than if he had never suffered. John twenty twenty, Jesus' first appearance to disciples, what does Jesus do? He says, peace be to you, peace be unto you, and then he shows them his scars. He shows them his hands and feet. What is it with these scars? When Jesus shows up, he, he has this, as we know, this new and improved body that goes through doors. It appears out of thin air. Yet he has his flesh and bones. He can touch. He can eat. And he goes out of the way 
to show this by asking his disciples to fix a meal on the beach. Yet, if you study the scripture, you still get this impression that the disciples couldn't really, that Jesus was so transformed and so different that without the wounds, the disciples may not have recognized Jesus. So Jesus shows them his scars, the evidence of his suffering. And I've always asked myself, why, why did God not just remove the scars? Why did the scars remain? Why didn't he just heal the wounds? And why are the scars the first thing Jesus points to? So what's happening? The text that we read today during the worship, the scripture reading, will shed some light here. And that's Ephesians 2, 5 through 11. It says basically that Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality of God with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became a man. And more than that, became a man with the heart of a servant who was obedient to death. And this says, therefore, God highly exalted him. And in the Greek, it says probably be better read, he super exalted him. He hyper exalted him. So here's what I've always thought. Jesus was in the form of God. He emptied himself, became a man, died and suffered to death, was rose again, and then he was restored by God to his original state as God with all his attributes, his infinite beauty, his infinite perfections, and full of glory. Sort of like, sort of like back into a spirit like God. But now I don't think that's precisely what Paul is saying here. I believe that what Paul is suggesting here is this. Because of Jesus' suffering and death as a man, as a man, he retains his human body forever in eternity. No less God, no less divine, but with his human body, with his scars, he now has ascended to a new and greater glory that he did not have before his incarnation. That he now ascends to a new and greater, higher glory that he did not have. Now, you should be sitting here right now and saying, if Jesus was God, infinitely glorious, infinitely perfect, divine, could any greater glory be conferred on Jesus Christ? On one who is already God. Can God become more glorious than he already is? That is an important question to ask. Isn't it? Because I'm suggesting here. That Jesus' exaltation. His super exaltation. Made him to some degree. Higher and more glorious. And has a name in heaven. That is honored. I'm not the only one, fortunately. There's a guy a lot smarter than me that wrestled with his name. This. His name is John Eady, and he lived in the 1800s. He was a theologian, pastor, scholar. And here's what he said on this text. He asked the question, how can additional honor be conferred on God? This former God was laid aside in the days of humiliation and obedience, and that in his exaltation, exaltation he, was not, he has not simply reassumed it. In other words, the Godhead. But a higher glory has now been conferred on him. A new element is introduced. The human nature of the Christ. A new element. The nature in which he veiled his glory, as we saw in incarnation, and stooped to death. I, such a death, has been elevated. 
He has added a new glory to his original splendor, the glory acquired as a redeemer. Praise the Lord. Blessed be God. Here's what Edie is saying. For all eternity, all eternity, the two preeminent credentials of Jesus' new and greater glory will be his humanity and the evidence of his suffering, the body and the scars. The man, Jesus, Edie continues, is Lord of all. He divested himself of the divine form. He came down, but lower and lower still did he descend till he was put to death along with vulgar criminals. And therefore, the exaltation rises in proportion to the previous death from the cross up to the crown. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above all names that every knee on heaven, on earth, and under the earth shall bow at the name of Jesus. One day we will appear before Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will ascend. You will resurrect in your body and you will be in the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the ages. And the first thing you will see, amazingly beautiful, is the man Jesus in flesh and blood. And then he will show you his wounds the evidence of your redemption, the evidence of your justification, the evidence of your forgiveness, the evidence of his suffering death. And you will bow down and call him Lord. His, his glory rises from the ashes of his suffering. Okay, that's what I call theology of the scars. Jesus is more glorious, has a higher and greater glory because of his suffering than he would have if he didn't. But why does this have massive promise to us now? Why is the resurrection from the dead so important? Keller says this, and and I have to be honest, this sermon is a complete, what do you call it? Plagiarism? (laughs) Plagiarism? Is that a word? Plagiarism? And actually, there's nothing new under heaven, right? So whatever I, this sermon has been preached scores, thousands of times before. But I heard a similar sermon for Keller, so I want to give him, give justice, give due to his um, effect in my life, especially with, with the rest of this sermon. Jesus, because of the scars and the promise of the resurrection, Jesus is infinitely more to us now than he would have been if he had never suffered. Jesus is infinitely more to us now than he would have been if he had never suffered. Here's a quote from Keller. He says, God says, God's promise of the resurrection is that every evil act against your joy, against my people, against my world, against my glory, in the end, because of the resurrection, will accomplish nothing but make your joy, my people, my world, my glory, more high, more rich, more deep than it would ever have been otherwise. That's the promise of the resurrection. Every evil act against your joy, against my people, against my world, against my glory, 
in the end, because of the resurrection, will accomplish nothing but make your joy, my people, my world, my glory, more high, more rich, more deep than it would have been otherwise. There's two promises I want to focus on. Jesus is infinitely more to us cosmically. And the second promise, he is infinitely more to us personally. And we'll make a few uh, applications and we'll conclude. Because of the resurrection, first promise, Jesus is infinitely more to us cosmically. You know, the problem of evil is a huge issue with this generation. The problem of suffering how can a good God allow evil in the world, right? If he's all-powerful and good, he would dispense with evil and make everybody good, wouldn't he? But since he doesn't, he's not good, right? And if he's good and doesn't dispense with evil, then he can't be all-powerful because he's good but not powerful. That would make sense. The intrusion of evil into this world is a mystery, isn't it? Why did God allow it? Why is this world we live in so full of war, evil, justice, natural disasters, and death? The questions that come from every quarter, don't they? How can there be light in such darkness? How can there be good news? How can the good news be true in the midst of such badness? Here's the question. Must we be left to assume that the world we live in will always be irrevocably second best because it is so much less than perfect. Must God somehow just make the best of it? Is that what he's doing? Is he just putting on a good face on something like the women at the tomb? Putting spices over a rotting corpse just to make it smell better and put a good face on a bad story or a good story with a bad ending? Is the world something that is irreparably bad and little more than a lost opportunity for God? Yet here's the promise of Easter. On a certain day, this less than perfect world will be restored to a new and greater glory. Every believer knows this because of the resurrection. In Acts 3, 20 and 21, it says, Paul, Peter's preaching, says, you look forward to the day, may you receive Jesus, whom heaven must receive until a time of restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Restore there means restore to perfection. Restore to its original state. That there's a day coming that God will restore the whole earth to its greater glory. This world will be taken up to the greater glory and this new world will be infinitely greater in a world that was always perfect and never anything less than perfect. This world will be infinitely greater than the world that was always perfect and never anything less than perfect. The fall, sin, evil, murder, war, all will be taken up into the future and greater glory because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
Second Peter 3.13 says this, But according to his promise, we are all looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the promise of Easter. This world's restored world at the return of Jesus Christ will be infinitely higher because of the infinite depths from which it was restored. It will be more high, more rich, more deep than if evil had never existed. That's the promise of Easter. But even more significant, this holds immense promise for us today. Look, yes, this is an evil day. It's an evil age, Galatians 1.6. And yes, the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16. And none of us have to look very far just in our own city, our nation, or very far back in history to see this. The tens of millions of people who have been murdered and starved under Marxist, Leninist ideology. The final solution of Hitler. Some of us don't have to look very far in our own lives to see the pain, the loss, the failure, relationally, financially, physically. But consider this. In a world that had always been perfect, never been anything less than perfect, without this broken world, with this broken life, you could never imagine the possibility or opportunities for such things as bravery, (laughs) courage, fearlessness, nobility, standing up to evil. We have examples like the Titanic. And our hearts get stirred. There's this display of greatest valor as the men in unison said, women and children first. Knowing that they were at the same time yielding their lives to certain death and the peril of the sea. 9-11 was evil. Yet became the display of one New York fire department chaplain who raced in and out giving last rites, saving lives, until he himself was also crushed under the falling waves of concrete. And President Reagan, one of my heroes, standing against communism at the Berlin Wall on June 12, 1987, saying to Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And moreover, without a broken world, there would never have been the opportunity for good to triumph over evil. Mercy over judgment. Never a chance for death to be swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. There never would have been a cross. Never a resurrection. Never healing. Never forgiveness. Never grace abounding to the greatest of sinners. So yes, Jesus is infinitely more to us cosmically. But Jesus is infinitely more to us personally. The promise of the resurrection is that your future joy will be greater for having once been sad. The promise of the resurrection is that your future joy we can talk about the world, we can talk about everything going cosmically in the end of the world, the new heavens and earth. But what does it mean for me personally? The promise of the resurrection, your future joy will be greater for having once been sad. 
to follow me here. Let me ask you. What do you see when you press the replay button on the video recording of your life? What's there? Certainly some good memories. But there will always be some scars. Aren't there? There are the bad things you have done to others. And there are bad things that others have done to you. My, my, (laughs) I have done so many bad things to myself. We all have. And every time we play that video or the audio of our life, those pains, those scars come back to us, piercing sometimes, as if they had just happened. They just happened yesterday. Why doesn't God just snap his fingers? Why doesn't he just snap his fingers? He is all power. Why doesn't he just make it go away? As much as we want him to, he doesn't, does he? I know some here have lost children. Some have lost their health. Some have lost very dear relationships. And some of us likely have done some pretty bad things to other people and we've reaped the consequences of that. And all of us certainly can reflect and think of the bad things that have been done to us that still feel like a wound And God doesn't make it go away. He doesn't. But the promise of the resurrection is this. This is our hope. I love this verse. In the new heavens and earth, new earth, in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21 says, He, God himself, will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The former things, those scars, those wounds, those tears, those feelings of regret, missteps, failures, sin, or will all be former things because Jesus rose from the dead and because Jesus bears scars of suffering that say all suffering will be turned to your greater joy, your greater delight. At the end of age, every good thing lost will be restored. Every sad thing will become untrue. Like Jesus, the scars, your sad things will be taken up into the future glory and joy. Yes, the scars of Jesus will remain on him for eternity. And do you see the connection? Jesus' eternal glory is greater than if he had never suffered. 
In the same way, your future glory will be greater, more rich, more full for having once been sad. Do you believe that? You've all seen the Lord of the Rings. And Sam Ganji, when he sees, at the end of the story, he sees Gandalf the White. The Gandalf he saw fall into the abyss with that beast of evil. And Gandalf, in, tip, in, in a, sort of a typical fashion, a tip, I mean in a form of type of the rest, who rises up to greater glory and joy. And Sam says to him, I thought you were dead. And then he says, if everything's sad, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the definitive answer to that is yes. Everything sad will come untrue. You know, C.S. Lewis probably saw this better than anybody in The Great Divorce. The old Saint George MacDonald says this about heaven. He says, all this earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. All this earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. Some mortals say that of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. But these same mortals do not know that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn every agony, that agony, into a glory. Like the scars of Jesus. The promise of the resurrection. He will turn your regrets and agonies into a glory. And he continues, a man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins... And remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. Because of the resurrection, because Jesus is more glorious because of the scars, your future happiness and joy will be greater for having once been sad. And then the message of 2 Corinthians 4.17, momentary light affliction is producing for each of us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Every millisecond of your life will be, is freighted with significance because in heaven it's going to be restored to new and greater glory because of the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. It enables us to see suffering, everything differently. It changes our perspective so much we can call the worst day of history Good Friday. We call it Good Friday. It's the most heinous act of history. Murder of an innocent man, suffering, torture, death on the worst form of, of Torture in history that time, yeah, we call it good because we knew it was producing a greater glory and the resurrection was coming. Secondly, Jesus is infinitely more to you now. We know in heaven, God will make every sad thing untrue. But you're asking, that's all fine and good, but what about my life now? The video still plays, doesn't it? We all have a history. The memories, like I said, can ring incredibly sad with an inner ache and pain. The pains and the hurt are the scars that remain. And so here's the question. Are we left then with only a lingering sadness or regret to live as if everything is irretrievably second rate? You don't have to let the ache and pain become the end of the story for you. That's the promise. The woman at the tomb 
is a parable. We are the woman at the tomb, my friends. They were bringing spices to cover the stench of the decomposed corpse of a crucified Savior. To cover the stench of a good story gone bad. And they were reeling. They were disillusioned. They were like in a sense of vertigo. They went to a tomb and they didn't even think of how to remove this stone that probably weighed 3,000 pounds. Like vertigo, the disillusionment of this women. We put all of our bets in this man who promised us a future. We put everything in him. We depended, we supported him, we fed him, we watched him do miracles, we saw him raise the dead, and he's now dead. Betrayal, anger, fear, yet. <laughs> I love this image. I love this image. They come and they see this angel sitting. The sign of a conqueror, a sign of a deed accomplished. And I just imagine this angel, he's blazing light, like lightning. And there's these war, war-hardened soldiers, right? It says earthquake occurred. And then he uses the same word, these soldiers are quaking. It's almost like this, this composure of the angel. He's up there like C.S. Lewis. You know, he said with his leg crossed, and and you know the the the, the, the ladies are full of fear, worry, just lose alone. And he's sitting there smoking that thing. He goes, "Hey, what's happening? Can you imagine the sight? These ladies, and they, they see these soldiers. Oh, it's almost like he was he was composed, and they were decomposed, discomposed. Is that a word? Serenity, chaos." What did you do with that? And the angel says to them, I I know who you're looking for. I know who you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus. And he uses this Greek word, who was crucified. It's a perfect passive verb, which means a past act with continually effects. A past act that has continually present effects. You're looking for the wrong Jesus. You're looking for a Jesus who has only been crucified. You know what his answer is? He's not here. He, if you're looking for that kind of Jesus, he is not here. For he is risen. He is risen indeed. He says, go, doesn't he? He says, do not be afraid, but go. Jesus is risen just as he said. And their eyes are open, aren't they? They realize Jesus has been saying this all along. This was the plan. This was the eternal will and purpose of God that he died and rose again for our future happiness. And then Jesus greets them on the way, right? They're walking. He says, go tell the disciples, Jesus is going before you. Just like he said, go tell the disciples. And Jesus shows up on the way, right? And he goes, howdy. 
literally, that's what he does. It's not like grace to you or peace and all these greetings that the Greeks had. But it was just like this informal, how you doing? The composure of this man. And it says they went away with great fear and joy. This, this composition, this intermingling of two opposite emotions, fear and joy. And you know the rest of the story. They realized this death was never outside of God's care and control. It was not the end of the story, but the beginning of the grand story, right? The climax of history was the most heinous act of history. Suffering precedes the resurrection. This last week, a couple weeks ago, we, my wife and I meet with couples that we've known since before we were married. And we have this delightful practice we have. We have a basket full of questions, right? Many of you have been to our house, you've probably experienced where you, you pull the question out and you have to answer it. Well, I thought wise to put in some Jordan Peterson quotes, all right? Now, Jordan Peterson is not a believer by any stretch of me. He's a clinical psychologist from Canada, but he has these great aphorisms, these great quips and, uh, you know, truisms. So I put one in there, it goes like this. It goes, um, and I have learned through painful experience that nothing's is going so badly that it can't be made worse. <laughs> and you think about it, there's a lot of wisdom to that, but we won't go there, okay? You know, micro, micro, micro catastrophes turn into macro catastrophes, right? If we don't deal with the little things. And it just happened, my dear friend Jane Tuck pulled that out, whose husband had died six years ago which were really the, 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 the catalysts that started these annual meals that we have with these old friends that we know for 40 years. And she reads it. It's her turn. She reads it. And the girl next to me, lay next to me, she groans. She goes, how did that get in there? <laughs> that is just so depressing. <laughs> but Jane says, no, I want to answer it. I want to answer it. And she goes on to this beautiful eulogy <laughs> of her husband. who died six years ago, a premature death. And how sweet that time was for her. How she experienced more than of Christ. She experienced more compassion, more empathy, more prayer, <laughs> more peace. And then she said, I miss that. That experience has faded over six years, but I miss the joy, the greater joy that the pain brought. Why? Why could Jane experience that? Because death has no victory. Death has no sting for believers because of the resurrection. You should clap to that. You should do a woohoo. At least my kids should then. <laughs> okay. One more page. Even now in your life, this promise is being fulfilled. Your bad things are being transformed into such character like wisdom, like Jane. Empathy, insight, humility, cautiousness, holiness, justice, empathy, love. Because of the bad things you've experienced. But what about the bad things that have been done to you? That's the hard one. 
Anger is such a sense of moral justice that we get angry when we're offended, right? When we're betrayed, when somebody is treacherous to us. But here's what those are doing in each and every of you because of the resurrection. They are transforming each and every one of you from people of ungrace to people of grace. What do I mean by that? Ungrace to grace. Instead of vengeance, because the bad things done to you, there is mercy. Instead Instead of resentment, Empathy and compassion. Instead of anger, there is forgiveness. There is no path to grace. No path to mercy, to empathy, to forgiveness, unless there are scars first. The bad things done to you because of the resurrection. To everyone who believes here, our path to future grace. You know, Leaf, there's a story, a short story you should all read. It's by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's called Leaf by Niggle. Niggle in heaven, Niggle has a miserable life. In heaven, he joins his nemesis, his annoying neighbor from earth called Parish. This guy's a Catholic, by the way. He joins this annoying neighbor from Earth called named Parrish, who always took advantage of Nigel and never did a stroke for him and seldom showed any gratitude. Yet Nigel, in heaven, begins to discover that a heaven without Parrish at his side could never be complete. Parrish compliments him in heaven. And when he reflects on his life on Earth, he says, asks if... He'd have any regret. He says, things could have been different, but they couldn't have been better. Things could have been different, but they couldn't have been better. And that's the promise of Jesus, the scars and the resurrection. Every suffering, every betrayal, every misstep, every sinful act, every bad thing done to you, and by you will be turned into a greater and future joy. And that's the promise of the resurrection. I think Jonathan Edwards put this this way, and it's on every one of my emails. Your bad things will be turned to good. Your good will never be taken away. And the best is yet to come. So, the angel at the tomb is still asking you, what Jesus do you seek today? Is he a resurrected Jesus or only a crucified, suffering Jesus? And the angel is still speaking, don't be afraid. And Jesus is still saying, peace be with you. There's this poem called Jesus of the Scars. It goes like this. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The other gods were strong. Thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds speak. Not as a God, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. 
the promise of the resurrection, that every evil act against your joy, against my people, against my world, against my glory, in the end will accomplish nothing but make your joy, my people, my world, my glory, more high, more rich, more deep than it, than it would have been otherwise. Now in the evening before his death, at Gethsemane, Jesus shuddered. He shuddered with a sheer and undiluted horror at the prospect of the cross. And if you read the story, he bled blood and it almost undid him. So he sought comfort in prayer from his loving eternal father who he dwelt with in eternity but found hell instead of heaven. Yet Jesus went forward and embraced the horror of hell and suffering so you could receive heaven and eternal joy with it. As C.S. Lewis says, joy will be the serious business of heaven. It should be the serious business of our lives because of the suffering and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll close with Psalm 35, excuse me, Isaiah 35:10. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with song, and everlasting joy shall be on their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are so, so massively grateful today for your obedient son and became the God that bled. There is no God in any religion of the world, Lord, that bleeds that you chose because of your love for us to bleed on our behalf, to bear our sins, to bear our sadness and our bad things and replace it with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's the promise, Lord. Open our eyes. Holy Spirit, do your work. Do the heavy lifting in our hearts, Lord, to see how great and glorious you are and the power and promise of your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have the opportunity now to come to the Lord's table. We can celebrate what and proclaim the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So the table is open for all who've repented of their sins means you've put your hope, your trust in Jesus Christ alone, and that you've been baptized, publicly declaring your allegiance to Jesus. And if that describes you and you're visiting us from another church, then you're welcome to partake and celebrate with us today. We're going to come up row by row, starting in the back, starting in the back, coming forward. Take the elements back to your seat, and um, one of our elders will come and lead us corporately.